like to speak tonight, as I mentioned before, about community and sangha, which is the Sanskrit or Pali word for community. And it's one of the refuges in Buddhist practice, one of the very central understandings of what it means to awaken is community, spiritual community. And so the question for us to begin with is, what is community? And I think as a group of people in coming to Spirit Rock, whether it's a few times or over a long period of time, it's something that us, that we together have to look at. Um, And more deeply, what is the relationship between an individual's path of awakening and the sense of community that might grow out of that? So tonight I'd like to raise some questions because it's easy to say we're all one and it's easy even in a meditative retreat or through certain practices we might do in some evenings here to feel the truth of that non-separation. But then what? What about the rest of the time between those moments of opening or truth or whatever? There's a story of Mullah Nasruddin, the Sufi holy fool and wise man. Um, He was hired to be the advisor to the Grand Sultan one year because of the speed of his wit and his mind. And so he was there as the advisor to the sultan in the inner court. And one morning the sultan said, I'm going to go out into uh, the kingdom. Um, Tell me, what should I wear? What's it like out there? He hadn't been out yet. They were in the inner court. And just then a cat streaked by, and it was all wet. And Nasruddin, with his speed of mind and wit, said, Well, uh, um you know, your majesty or whatever he called him. Um, It's pouring rain outside, so dress accordingly. And he got in all his raiments and rain dress and so forth and went outside. And of course, the sun was shining. It was very hot. Someone had simply thrown a pail of water on the cat. (laughs) And Nasruddin lost his job and nearly lost his head at the same time. We all know in this culture and this time that there has been a loss of community, a loss of connection, so that we can be in our office buildings a little bit like Nasruddin and have to turn the radio on to find out what's going outside with the weather or the traffic or things like that. We also get distanced. Um, There's been a loss that's gradually moved from the connection many, many, many thousands of years of human life, of tribal and village life, where we knew who our neighbors and friends and the people that lived on the land with us were. Um, When I was in Bali the last time, I went with the Balinese family uh, that we stayed with in this compound to a temple festival a number of villages away. We had to drive for some distance to get to this temple festival. And it was a big holy day and celebration. And there were hundreds of people there. I think probably eight, nine hundred, a thousand people. And at one point I turned to Made, who was our 
the person who, man of our compound. And I said, Made, um, do you know the people in this village? He said, of course. I said, how many of these people at this gathering, this temple gathering, do you know? And he looked around and he looked at me with some kind of astonishment. And he said, everybody. <laughs> and it was an amazing moment. Imagine that. 900 people knew which village and which family. And I realized in that moment, in a very stark way, how much we have lost. The sense of tribe, the sense of village. And then for a while, even without that, there was a sense of extended family, several generations, grandparents, great-grandparents, parents, children, and so forth. And then it got to be nuclear family. Remember those, right? In the 50s or whenever that was. And then it's become what they call the atomic family, right? Where the nuclear family is broken apart. And the majority of children in America will, at some point in their growing up now, not be in even a nuclear family with the two parents that were their birth parents. Quite astonishing. But it's not just that. It's the empty carpool lane, kind of empty, and the crowded lanes of one person in a car on the freeways. Or the fact that we don't know our neighbors um, very well after living in some place for a long time, in our apartment building or on our street. Or the speed at which we keep ourselves busy. I've been reading this, a book on ritual and community by an African medicine man and friend, Maladoma Somme, a wonderful teacher. And he was sitting around with the elders in his village, drinking some African village beer and just enjoying the afternoon and trying to explain what it was like to live in the West. He has a PhD from the Sorbonne and a PhD from Brandeis and teaches in the various universities and so forth. And he tried to explain what a day would be like here. And he said, there isn't the kind of stillness. This would be a shock to most Westerners just to sit around all afternoon as we do. Their schedule is faster. One of the elders asked, where do these white people run to every morning? (laughs) To their workplaces, of course, I answered. Why do they have to run to something that is not running away from them? (laughs) They do not have time. I had to say the word in French because in the Dagara language, there's no equivalent word for time. The conversation came to a halt when the elder had to ask, what is this time that you speak of to not have enough of? (laughs) In the wonderful books of Lawrence Vanderpost, where he describes the passage across Africa, um, in the, and through the Kalahari Desert of these young people and Bushmen, really describing the ancient kind of culture of Africa. There's a place that I spoke of some months ago, I was reading, where these young people and the two Bushmen that are taking them to safety across the desert are out in the middle of the night with a little tiny fire in the Kalahari, and all of a sudden this lion roars. And the young man who'd grew, grown up in Africa young Dutch Dutchman and felt himself to be an expert on lions as a young boy would be said he'd never heard a lion roar like that before in his whole life 
because it was the first time that he heard a lion roar that had never really encountered human beings. And it had a different kind of roar and a majestic sound, he said, that's unlike anything else on earth. This beautiful passage, he said, the only things you can imagine equivalent are a great falling star or a double rainbow, just something that you look at and your, your eyes just open in wonder, this enormous roar. And I read it, and again, I thought about the loss that we have of connection to the stars or to walking around at night or listening to the sounds of the natural world that we're a part of. The loss to the soul, the spirit, whatever you want to call it, deep in our being. Now, the spiritual life of the Buddhist tradition speaks of the three refuges. One uses refuges as a way of understanding spiritual practice. The first is the awakening to the Buddha, to the Buddha within, awakening to our own Buddha nature, this great capacity for compassion and presence or awareness that lies within each of us. And the second refuge is the discovery from that of the Dharma, which means the law, the Tao, the teachings or the way that brings freedom, awakening. And discovering that freedom, as one great master said, you discover that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. So that leads to the third of these great refuges, which is Sangha, community. The recognition that in spiritual life, we cannot do things alone. Perhaps all of the spiritual practice we do leads us just in the simplest way to a greater capacity to love one another, to be connected with all of life without that sense of separation. In the early tales from the Buddhist tradition, there are lots of animal stories. They're called the birth tales of the Buddha. I'll tell some of them this fall in various talks. And one of them is called the Jataka, or the birth story, when the Buddha was the king of the banyan deer. And in this particular story, the deer lived in a great magnificent forest, and the king of that kingdom loved to hunt. And he would take his courtiers and go out on hunts, But as they did over and over, they ruined the fields of the farmers and the merchants were upset. They destroyed things in the countryside and the people got up in arms after a while and said, let's kind of limit this. This is getting too much. And so they built a huge stockade in the forest and they beat uh, some drums and got the animals, especially the deer, to come into this stockade. So the king would have a place to hunt and the farmers and other people would be left in peace. So the king came out to the stockade with his bow and arrow to hunt. And he saw, as he did, the deer become wild and and start to trample one another. And all of a sudden, this great deer in the middle with the big antlers that looked like the king came and stood still and everything quieted around. And he said, this must be the deer king. We shouldn't kill him. We can take the other deer, but leave him alone. It was sort of like this moment where the king recognized for a moment the king of the deer was not so different than himself. He saw this nobility. 
So still every day they would come out and they would shoot deer and the deer would get upset and, and uh, many would get wounded in the fear of dying. So the deer king called the other deer together and saw the danger and said, you know, we are causing more harm to ourselves than necessary. We're in this difficult predicament. Let us do it another way. Let us draw lots. And so the deer got straws together on the ground and somehow managed, who knows? This is the story, so you have to... They talk later, so this is nothing, right? And they drew lots, and they figured out which deer by that lot would go for that day to die. So the next day the king's courtiers came, and there was one deer waiting there. And the king saw this and was astonished and said, Ah! These are noble deer indeed. They were hurting one another, and they and their king decided to sacrifice one each day. We will only take the one they offer. We will accept their terms. So this went on for a number of days, and then it happened that the lot was drawn by a fawn who was pregnant with a young deer in her womb. And she began to weep and said, it may be fine for me to die, but it is unfair for my unborn child. And she went to the king of the deer and she wept. She went to the others, will someone take my place? No one would. And finally the king said, yes, there is a just solution. You need not worry. And the next morning, as you can imagine, when the time came for the deer to be shot, the king went and stood himself there. Well, the courtiers sent back to the palace, and the king of the kingdom came out and saw the king of the deer there and said, We have excused you. Why do you stand here? And from this his speech arose, and he explained, he said, Oh, your majesty, said, We have chosen to draw lots, as you have seen, and the lot fell upon this one pregnant doe. What could I do? but take her place. And the king was so touched by this nobility again, he said, I will spare her life and yours. And the dear king shook his head and said, it is not enough, your majesty, still others will be killed. And as he spoke, somehow compassion arose. And the king of the kingdom looked and he said, all right, I will spare all of you. I will release you. And the deer king shook his head and he said, Yes, you will release us, but you will catch other of the four-footed of the forest, the leopards, the deer, the raccoons, the other animals. What about them? And somehow his heart was so touched that the king said, All right, we won't kill any of the four-legged animals. Then I will let you go. Are you satisfied? He shook his head. He said, the birds, people throw nets, they throw stones. Think of their freedom, your majesty, and think of your own. Would you not wish to fly in the sky if you could? Ah, yes, I would, indeed. So he let them free. The fish, by the time it was done, (laughs) the banyan deer king said, how can I live in peace if these others are not free? The king had established a rule that no creatures be killed unnecessarily in the kingdom. 
And the deer leapt for joy, the gates were open, they went back to the forest, and a great stone pillar was erected, on top of which was a statue of the deer king, whose nobility and compassion then was remembered for a thousand years in that kingdom. The communion and the compassion for all living creatures. So this is sort of the end of the fairy tale, if you will, in the Buddhist tradition. And it's really a story of the heart. It's a story of nobility and ethics that reminds one in oneself of a kind of respect. You can find yourself in the story as the banyan deer king, or maybe as the pregnant doe, or maybe as the hunted deer sometimes in your life, or maybe as the king who loved hunting, or the farmers whose fields were destroyed. If you listen to a story, you hear all those pieces in yourself. But of course, the center of the story is to touch that place of nobility in each of us, our Buddha nature. Now, it is also a story about community, about caring for one another or treasuring one another's life. One of our community members and a friend is a woman who's been the director of, or not the director, but one of the founders of the Plain Tree Hospitals in San Francisco and elsewhere, which are trying to revolutionize medical care. Let me describe what they're doing. You're on the second floor of a modern medical center, but you would never know it. The Plain Tree Model Hospital does not feel, look, or sound like an ordinary one. Classical music plays softly in the background. Patients wear their own robes and pajamas, sleep on flowered sheets, and are encouraged to sleep in as long as they like. Imagine that. There's no nurse's station. It has been replaced by a convenient study area where patients are encouraged to read their own charts and write in them as well how they are doing in the progress of their healing. Imagine that. There are no visiting hours. Friends and family are welcome at all times convenient for the patients. Family members cook for their ailing loved ones in a special kitchen for patients. Interested family members are trained to serve as active care partners, changing dressings, flushing out IV lines, performing other vital nursing services. The family members who learn these techniques in the hospital then continue them at home to care for the patients. From the very beginning, it's clear at the Plain Tree Hospitals that things are arranged for the healing of the patient and not for the convenience of the medical staff. As one nurse explained, once patients get a taste of the Plain Tree model, they simply won't permit themselves to be admitted anywhere else. Isn't that extraordinary? You know what's most extraordinary? Angie Terry is one of the people setting that up. What's most extraordinary about it to me is how obvious it is. How obvious that you be cared for and allowed to sleep and and be a part of your own treatment and have your family and food and things that nourish you in your healing. But it speaks about how far we've gotten in our culture from true community. When the Buddha was there in the forest one day, his attendant Ananda came up and said, it seems to me, Master, 
I've been reflecting, it seems that half of the holy life is having good friends, community. The Buddha said, not so, Ananda. Ananda said, then what is so? The Buddha replied, in fact, the whole of spiritual life, of the holy life, is association with noble friends, with, with good friends, with noble ways of being, with noble community, all of that together. If you care for the sick brothers as you would care for me, he said, then you create our community as it truly should be. If you don't care for them, who will care for you? You know the exercise that sometimes I've done on workshops or retreats of reflecting back the Buddhist meditation on the good deeds of your life, two good deeds. People raise their hand and they look back over their whole life. The things that come to mind as if they were dying, what really, what were those special moments? I was telling my father I loved him before he died or taking care of my sister's children because she was in an accident or assisting a disabled neighbor or this young boy who worked in our store we found that some of the inventory the whole computer system was missing and instead of turning him into the police I went to his house and talked to him about it and he came back and he wrote a letter of apology to the store he brought all the things back and instead of going to prison, he came and worked off the amount that he had lost, and we became good friends, and I became a mentor for him. The things that matter when you look back in your life are so simple. That kind of presence for another person. Now, usually these days, it happens most during an emergency the earthquake, the blackout, you know, the flood, the Mississippi flood, when they let some of the young prisoners out of the state prison in Illinois to go and build, do sandbags in these little towns in uh, uh, nearby states. And the prisoners who were there grew up in the ghetto had never seen cows and sheep and never associated with farm community. They loved it, and they were loved, they were welcomed, they were asked to come back. It's a kind of temporary community, the community in emergency. It used to be more common and more positive. Barn raising, help with the harvest, help with your kids when you're giving birth to another child, food for those who are hungry in our community shared. Close your eyes for a moment. Just simply, you don't have to move, but just close your eyes and reflect, if you would, on the times in your life where you felt the deepest sense of community, working in concert with others, some joint project, some creative venture, some deep communion, communion of the Spirit. When was that? What were those times? And as you remember them, also sense how it felt to have your heart connected and share in that commonness of community.
So just hold that memory with you for a little bit. We'll do something with it in, in, in a little while. In some way, the word community and communion words fit together. Communion or connection, to commune. And they are fundamentally the same as the mindfulness, the wakeful presence that is central to the meditation practice that we do in the tradition of awakening of the Buddha. It's like in those good deeds, a moment of presence in oneself or with another being. Now, in these times, many people long for community, for communion. First, for the community that is natural and ordinary, as that description of Plaintree Hospital that I read. Lewis Thomas, the biologist, said, the most powerful force of biology is symbiosis, is cooperation. All of life is interconnected. So part of it's this longing for neighbors and friends and lovers and helpmates, the ordinary connectedness that we've lost. And part of it goes deeper, a kind of deep community with other human beings where we are known and seen, where our deepest feelings are shared, and where there's an awakening somehow of the sense of the sacred, of the holy, of finding a place of belonging on this earth in a particular place with the inter- interbreathing with the air and the trees and the animals and all those who live around us. The true sense of community is born of our capacity for presence, for intimacy or mindfulness. That's why the practice of stillness and meditation or retreats itself is such a powerful thing for creating community. In Maladoma's tribe in the Dagara, he describes during his initiation as a, as a uh, teenage boy, at one point he was kind of in a trance and they asked him to go back as far as he could to the beginning. He didn't even know what that meant. And all of a sudden he found himself in his mother's womb. And there was a drum beating and his grandfather speaking to his mother, saying, who are you, child, to be born? And then he said, I could feel myself in there, and my mother spoke my voice, and she answered, I am a boy, and I am coming. I will go far across the ocean to bring the words of the ancestors to others. This is what happened in his initiation long before he did that. This whole amazing description of what it means to listen like that. The question was, what is your purpose here on earth? What do you come for? Imagine being asked that as a child when you come in. What brings you here? What is your gift on this earth? What is your purpose? By nature, we are interconnected. We are social. Our consciousness is joint. We create the world. And in the absence of community and communion in the sacred, there's loneliness, isolation, suicide, depression, latchkey kids raised by TV and daycare at times in really uh, destructive ways. Gang wars, because there isn't any other source of community. Kids make it for themselves. No initiation, no elders. 
with community, we help one another. It's like someone told me in AA, they learned the first step is we saw that we were absolutely powerless over our addiction. And at first, they thought it meant I saw that I was absolutely powerless. But that's not really so, because then you're still isolated. And then they said they were driving with their sponsor and trying to drive and reach back and get a Coke out of this cooler and stuff. And the sponsor, the person who brought them into AA, said, remember the first step says we are powerless. We help one another. I can get you the Coke. You don't have to do it yourself. You are not alone. In the first books of Buddhist teachings, of the volumes of the records of the Buddha, the Vinaya, there's the history and the founding principles of community, long-term well-being of community, consensus, democratic process, forms of respect, rituals for entering and leaving, place for elders, ceremonies for confession, for praise, for blessing, place for forgiveness, all of those in community. And I lived in these monastic communities. They were wonderful. We can't, almost we can't forgive ourselves. We need someone else there with us. Recently when the Dalai Lama was in teaching in Arizona, there's a woman who rushed up to him last week who was a Chinese woman while he was going down this line just greeting people And she explained, she said, oh, I was in China and I've escaped now. And while I was there, I was a tour guide. I led all these tours of people through Tibet. And I was supposed to show them how the Chinese occupation of Tibet benefited the people. And I knew it wasn't true. And I'm so sorry I did it. And I beg your forgiveness. She got down on her knees. And he got down right next to her and he hugged her. And he put her head on his shoulder. And he just kind of stroked her and he said, there, 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 it will be all right, it's okay, you're forgiven, you can let go of that. That is a moment of community, of really saying what we need to say and being heard not from some place of the mind, but really the communion of the heart. True community is compassion and openness, a place where we can speak the truth, and tell our stories of hardship and fear and mistakes, and support one another in awakening. That's what spiritual community is. In Hindu tradition, it's satsang, sangha in Buddhism, and the Christian tradition, whenever two or more are gathered in his name. The deepest sense of community is a kind of grace that comes when we are together with enough trust, enough sense of the beauty of life that we are held, that our separateness drops away and our minds quiet. All the separateness our minds create just stops. We look at one another and we feel this incredible oneness that is so. All know that the drops merge into the ocean. Few know that the ocean merges into the drop. There's a silence and an incredible joy in communion and community.
Now here's our problem. I'm going to state our problem, and then we'll, we'll do a couple of little exercises. Twenty years ago, when we first started teaching insight meditation in the West, we took the retreats, which were kind of the jewel in the middle of Buddhist practice, out of the community, and we taught these ten-day and month-long and three-month retreats, and they were transformative, simple, deep, very wonderful practice. But then people went back after them, and there was no community. Where the retreats came from, the monasteries had communal life together, ethics, rites, villages, um, celebrations, ceremonies, marriages, weddings, all of that together. But I think that we didn't do that in the beginning because as teachers we were too young and we were not prepared for the responsibility of really living in community because it was scary. So we traveled around and taught retreats. That's what we could do and what we knew. But now as a community here at Spirit Rock and elsewhere, we face this huge loss, the loss of the sacred in connection. No village and neighbor and spiritual friendship the way it used to be in tribes. Maybe some of us have that, but many don't. And there's this huge gap or hole and a lot of things to be healed and a lot of expectations. Even Monday night here, you know, it's grown so big, a lot of old students won't even come anymore. It's like it's too crowded and it's too social and there isn't really a way to be intimate. And some want to network and speak and nourish and make community. And others come and all they want to do after a long day is sit quiet and maybe be nourished by a few words of Dharma and not have to talk to anybody. We have both of those needs in this room. And then we have this office with a staff of three people getting hundreds of calls each week as we've grown. They're trying to build a retreat center, coordinate retreats. Um, we have 20 sitting groups and 20 Kalyanamitta student-led groups on parenting and family and the aging process and communication and Buddhist psychology. We have old students groups and myself, Sylvia's Anna's Dharma Psychotherapy Network, a newsletter, some ceremonies for marriages and funerals. But quite honestly, there isn't so much sense of community. With all that, it's actually still missing. And the things that people might want, or what are we going to do as we grow old? What do we do with elders among us? How do we care for each other as we age? Hospice, social service, feeding the hungry, arts and community, creativity, singles, people who want to meet others. Um, teens, multicultural things. These are all the kinds of suggestions I've heard. It's a big task to create community. Who should take it on? How best should we do it? How much should we do? How quickly? And what style? Barn raising? Email? You know? There are a lot of different styles, aren't there? I mean, here we all live far away. We have work days to work on the land. You know what? Hardly anybody comes to volunteer. We have a few wonderful volunteers, but very, very few. There is a resurgence. There's the farmer's market. There's the con consciousness of ecology. There's the kind of beautiful project of feeding the homeless that Bruce talked about. 
For us, the question is, how can we honor Sangha as a refuge, and where should we go as a community together? The earth needs it, we need it. You know, the PLO and the Israelis are trying to make community. It's needed in Yugoslavia. It's needed to re-honor the Native Americans. It's needed in Angola or East Los Angeles. And we all need it deeply. As one of our community members wrote, communities are places where each member can give something. Just to give is so important. Where they can contribute something that they feel especially able to give, something they're good at. The gift from each member is valued by the whole community, and all gifts are unique and individual. The gifts that the community gives back to each member is that place of connection. Being who we are calls forth respect and love and wanting the best for one another and ourselves. This is right relationship, as essential to the community of human life as is the air that we breathe. And finally, from Martin Luther King, I'd like somebody to mention that day that Martin Luther King has died, that he tried to give his life to serve others. I'd like somebody to say that day that Martin Luther King tried to love somebody. I want you to say that I was trying to feed the hungry. I want you to say that I tried to serve humanity. If you want to say I was a drum major, say that I was a drum major for justice. Say that I was a drum major for peace, for righteousness. All that I want is to leave a committed life behind. So this is what I'd like. We have about half an hour left. I would like you first to take about 10 minutes to make groups of just four or five of you together to turn to a few other people and share what came in that meditation of what were those moments that you remembered where there was real community in your life, just so you can hear each other. And then we'll come back and we'll have a little bit of group discussion following it. So please, do that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.